last week that did great, huh? Kids in the service last week, did everybody enjoy that? It was, a, it was a blessing to see them here, and uh, we're glad uh, to be able to partner uh, with those teachers and uh, teach them God's Word. We're in Matthew chapter 6, uh, and so I encourage you to find uh, your copy of Scripture and turn there. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we're going to read it here together this morning. Um, but as we have seen, uh, the disciples come to Christ, and they ask Christ, Lord, could you please teach us how to pray? And Christ, in his response, says, uh, in this manner, pray. And, and so we, we get the stage set for us that the Lord's Prayer is not to be just recited rotely uh, without using our minds, uh, but it's more of a model of prayer containing in it uh, the categories that, that we can hit, a menu, if you will, uh, of items that should be included uh, in our prayer life if it's going to have a well-balanced uh, spiritual diet, so to speak. And we looked at the last time how the Lord uh, gives us the privilege of being able to address God as our Father, that, that God is our Father, and how to address Him. Now we're going to look at the very first of the six petitions, hallowed be your name. So let's go ahead and read. Uh, I'll, I'll read aloud. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, look at verses 9 through 13. Christ says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, as we look at that prayer, uh, we're beginning here to, to go from the address, our, our Father in heaven, uh, to the petitions. Does everybody know what a petition is? Uh, I learned about petitions when I was in high school. Uh, there was a student that got this crazy idea that if he could get all the students in the class to sign a piece of paper that we could overrule the teacher and, and get her not to um, mandate for us to read this certain book. I believe the book was Weathering Heights, and, uh, and so it had a swear word in it or something like that, and I was raised in a Christian school, and this young man thought that if we just get all the kids to sign this paper together, this petition, that we could get the teacher to say, this is inappropriate. Now, the teacher saw that, heard it, and gave this young man, who was the only one to sign it, a book just for him. And you can imagine that there's temptation even for Christian school teachers. And the book, just for him, it was special. You know, it, it was longer. It was more difficult to read. And he had to do all his extra homework because now the teacher had two books to prepare for in class. And I learned really early on what a petition is. Uh, it is trying to show uh, through signings of names that, that you agree that those in authority uh, should change something. And so the Lord gives us, most people would agree, there are six petitions in this Lord's Prayer. It's broken up into two groups of three, kind of like the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments, uh, they're broken up in half, have to do with who God is and our relationship to Him, and then have to do with how we interact with each other. And it's the same thing here in the Lord's Prayer. Look with me at the first half. You'll see the difference as we notice. I know this is kind of a grammatical thing, uh, but it's important. We'll notice that the pronouns change. The first half talks about our Father and, and, and your name and, and your kingdom and your will be done. Right? And so it's all about who God is, and the Lord wants us in this model prayer to begin prayer with considering God's greatness. We're praying for, for His name to be hallowed, 
we're praying for His kingdom to come. We're praying for His will to be done. So it's, it's God's name, it's God's kingdom, it's God's will that we are to be concerned about. Then halfway through it changes, uh, the pronouns shift to us or to our and it reflects our normal, everyday, mundane life. Verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And what we're going to see this morning is that the order in which these two halves come should greatly impact uh, our prayer life. There is great significance to beginning with God and His name and His kingdom and His glory before we ever come to the things that are about us. The reason is uh, because if we were left to ourselves, how many of us would be honest enough to say that, that we would both begin and end prayer all about ourselves? It is a natural temptation to be consumed. We live in a selfie world, right? And so we are consumed with life all about us. And it would be very easy if we weren't given a model here that is going to stretch us and prod us just to go into God's presence with, hey God, it's me again. And yet we are never to address ourselves here. It actually just talks about how you are to address God. John Calvin says that it is a mark of the worldliness of our praying that we are far too little occupied with God when we pray. That has been revolutionary to me. I, I told you that this prayer sermon series was my first sermon series as a pastor here, and I thought that it would be easy. I thought I could not get in trouble if I just encouraged the church to pray more, right? I mean, no one's ever going to say, uh, stop preaching about prayer. Now, the, the, the tithe sermons, I get that one, okay? But, but the prayer sermons, I thought it would be easy, to build some trust, to build some rapport, and yet this prayer sermon series has been radical. It is challenging us in so many ways. And the parts that I thought were going to be challenging have been the easy parts, and other parts have been just difficult to overcome. Let me share with you how I thought this was going to happen. I thought as we look through the Lord's Prayer and we're planning a sermon series, the most difficult thing to help us as a church get some new rhythm and to get some muscle in will be practicing corporate confession. I thought that if we started confessing sins corporately as a church, that it would just be crickets. You know, people would say, that's between me and God, Pastor. I am not going to do that. But here's the strange thing. We had a time in which we sent off John and Angie Button and Rachel Planchet. And we had a time in that sending off of our missionaries of corporate confession. We had an inauguration prayer breakfast. And we had a time of corporate confession for our nation. And guess what happened? People responded oozing confession of how we have failed our missionaries, how we haven't been concerned for God's name and God's kingdom, uh, how we haven't given. We've, we had confession for our nation's sins and abortion and different things, and it just flowed out of us. It, it came off easy. But the most difficult part of our time in prayer in both of those instances was having a sustained time of adoring or praising God. And I had to ask myself, why is it so hard for the church to get into a routine and a rhythm and a habit of praising God? And I believe that Jesus, in teaching us to hollow God's name, is addressing what we are up against if we are going to make any headway in praying for God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. You see, what I've come to realize is that if God is not the starting point of our prayer, then our circumstances 
will drive our prayer life. Let me say that again. If God is not the starting point of our prayer, then our circumstances are going to be what propels and prompts and fuels our prayer life. Just think about it for a second. How many of our prayers are initiated because of personal circumstances? When do you confess your sin? When you fail and you mess up. When you feel guilt and shame. And so we pray fervently, Oh Lord, if you could just please pass by this. If you would just wash me for this. Lord, if I just wouldn't be judged for this. right? If I, if I could just not have the consequences for this. We pray when we fail. But it's not only when we confess is it prompted by our circumstances, but also our requests are prompted by circumstances. We have family members who have heard that we have learned has had cancer. And so we begin to do what? We pray fervently against that cancer. Uh, when our careers and our jobs take a difficult turn and we have problems at work, we begin to pray fervently. Now here's what I did not expect. It is completely illogical, but it is 100% human. Follow this with me. If we are prompted to pray when our circumstances aren't going the way we want them to, or if we've sinned, wouldn't you think that if life goes smoothly, that we'd be prompted to praise? But the answer is remarkably no. I can prove it to you. How many times have we prayed for safe travel only to get there, and then what? Do we offer thanks? Do, do we offer praise? No, Romans 1 right, says that out of all of these things that, that brought about human sin, they neither acknowledged who God was and glorified Him, neither did they give Him thanks. Isn't that anticlimactic? The, the, the biggest problem with sin is that, that we failed to give God praise. And what we learn is that when life is going smoothly, our truest our, our, our truest heart treasures seem safe. It never occurs to us to pray. Many of us would never pray if we didn't go through problems. We usually only pray when our circumstances demand it. And so I have a question for you this morning. Do you only pray when you're in trouble? Have you noticed that? Do you jump back into reading your Bible and doing your devotions, and, and praying when your job or your health or a social relationship is at stake. Those are the kinds of prayers that show what you truly value. It, it shows what is truly at stake. And so here's a principle that Christ's going to teach us all morning long, that the consistency of your prayer life will show you who or what your God is. The consistency of your prayer life will show you who or what your God is. Do you only pray when your job's in danger? Well, that's going to show you who or what your God is. Do you only pray when your health is at stake? Well, that's going to show you who or what your God is. Do you only pray for your family members and when something's going on? Well, maybe you worship family. And so what we see here this morning is that a church that needs to practice a sustained time in praise and awe, it reveals that we have a God-sized problem in our life. Follow this logic. If we only pray when our job and our health and our circumstances aren't going right, then it means that our job and our health and our circumstances 
is our true God and that we are only using God as a means to help us with those. We go to God to get things. We go to God to give us happiness, but he is not our happiness. And the Bible says that if our prayers are consumed with anything but God, then we are guilty of idolatry. Because we're putting something or someone else above his place. God's name is not hallowed. And so Christ begins this prayer. The very first request is, hallowed be your name. And I don't want you to miss this. This is of such importance because... It is not just, oh, you know what? I haven't been praising God a lot in my life. You know what? I need to add that aspect into my prayer life. To fail to praise God is not just to miss some aspect of prayer. It is actually a failure to treat God as God. It is trying to say that, God, you are worthy of our praise. All the angels fall down and worship you. We reverence you. We, we worship you. We surrender our lives. You are the most crucial and important aspect of our lives. So let's see how hallowing God's name can become the secret to our prayers, as well as the secret to all of life, how praising God actually heals our hearts. First, we have to know what it means from God's word, what it means to hallow your name. When you guys think about names, and you name your children. How have we named our children? Let's go ahead and we can talk back and forth. How have you picked names for your kids? Okay, people that you know. Okay, relatives, you want to honor somebody. How else? What they mean for some of us, great. What else? Family members. How about the sound? Doesn't it have to flow? I have a great friend uh, down in Virginia whose last name is Beach. He had a daughter. He goes, her name is not going to be Sandy. Okay, uh, so, you know, the, but it has to work together, right? It has to have a nice flow to it. And, and we are more concerned about how it flows uh, or someone to honor uh, than we are uh, what it really means. And in the Old Testament, the Jews took great concern about what their names meant because basically you are what your name was. You didn't just have a name, you were your name. And so Jacob was a deceiver, and guess what? He was a deceiver. Meher Shalahaspaz. That's just not a cool name, okay? Uh, but it meant something. It, it called their divine calling, and that is equally true for who God is. So let's go back and use our Bibles, Exodus chapter 3. If you're new to using your Bible, we encourage you to take that pew Bible home, and uh, it's our gift to you. But Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so go back to the beginning. And Exodus 3.14, we see the Lord talking to Moses, and this is that burning bush incident. And we see that God is going to reveal his name, and that when he reveals his name, he's revealing who he truly is. He does what his name says. So Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, if you are new to church, we are glad that you are here. There probably is not a more confusing name than I am, okay? Uh, but Christians, uh, we believe that God simply is. Here's what you need to know. God never had a beginning. Try to wrap your mind around that one. God never had a beginning. 
He is self-existent one. Everyone and everything else is completely dependent upon God, and yet God is independent. The theologians, here, here's a, a word for you to add to your vocabulary as you grow, the aseity of God, that he is completely self-sustaining, self-existent, self-sufficient, and we see that in why he represented himself in the burning bush. Was the burning bush deteriorating as he was in the burning bush? No. It wasn't being consumed. Just like God, he wasn't aging. He is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the New Testament, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come. That same idea that God is. But let's keep flipping and learn more about who our God is. Exodus 33, just flip over to the right a little bit more. Again, the larger numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses. Exodus 33, 19. We want your confidence to be in God's word and, and not in what I have to say. Uh, so Exodus 33, 19. We see the next name of God. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So here we learn that God is gracious, uh, that, that he's merciful, but we also learn that he's sovereign. He doesn't take anybody else's advice. He, he trusts his own wisdom. He determines who to show mercy to and who to show grace to. That, that is part of the nature of our God. Now we're going to flip over to a little bit more of a difficult book to find, Isaiah. So find Psalms, which is right there halfway in your Bible. And then the next big book is Isaiah. There's a couple small ones. But Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, verse 15. And we're going to see that God's name is holy. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He is holy. He is set apart. He is uncommon. He is extraordinary. There is no one like him and so he has extraordinary value. Think about it when it comes to coins, uh, stamps, diamonds. How do they increase in their worth? Rarity, right? How many of them were made? Uh, the condition that they were in? And what God's word is saying here is that there is no one like our God. Uh, he is holy. It is the one word that is used more often of God than any other word throughout Scripture, that He is a holy God. And when you have one of those rare coins or rare stamps or rare diamonds, do you keep them with all the other ones? No. There's usually a safe spot for it. And so look at our Lord who dwells in the high and holy place, also with Him who is of a, of a contrite and lowly spirit. Our Lord is holy. And we sang about that this morning. All of these songs were chosen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Where does that come from? Isaiah chapter 6. When the angels, guys, catch that, the angels, pure, perfect, in heaven angels, and they're going to pronounce, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But guess what? 
Even the angels, when they are saying that, what are they doing? They have six wings. They veil their faces. They veil their bodies. They veil their feet. Because even these perfect, pure angels in heaven say that God is completely other. God, God is set apart as holy. He is one of a kind. We come to the New Testament in our song, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Flip with me to 1 Timothy. That song is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6. You got to go way to the back to the T-books. And they are in alphabetical order. Thessalonians comes before Timothy. 1 Timothy 6. Verses 15 and 16, speaking of Christ, says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, he's one of a kind, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He is holy and he is worthy of our praise. He is self-existent. Uh, he is gracious. He is merciful. And he cares about his name, and his name reflects his person so much that he gives us this command. Think about this. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God wants us to hollow his name and he considers his name as his person and he says, I don't want to share my glory or my worship with anyone else because I am the only true God who is one of a kind. And so he says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. And so when God sees us as humans, we don't in America bow down to graven images that actually look like snakes and animals and reptiles. But we do bow down to other false gods. We do give our heart to other names, to other treasures. And God says, I want you to hollow my name. Which leads us to this next really important question. What in the world does hollow mean? Right? It is an old English word. The New International Version, very friendly, still uses that word. The ESV keeps it. It is an important word for us. What does it mean to hollow? Well, it's the same root word that means holy. It means to be set apart, to regard as holy, to have reverence. Hear the word in a more familiar passage, 1 Peter 3.15. But set apart Christ in your hearts as holy. Did you catch that? but set apart Christ, regard Christ as holy. And we have to notice that it's a very important distinction in this Lord's Prayer. Some of us think that our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is all part of the address. Right? Our Father who is in heaven, your name is holy. And then let's begin to ask things. That's not true. Hallowed be your name is actually asking God to do something. It is not an assertion. It is a petition. Lord, would you make your name hallowed? Well, what does that mean? Basically, what Christ is teaching us to pray is, Father, would you be given the reverence and the respect that your name and your character deserve? That's what it means to be hallowed. God, would you be seen? I think Augustine nailed it. This is his definition. This is prayed for 
not as if the name of God were not holy already, but that it may be held holy by men. That men would actually see you and hold you in reverence and high esteem. That you would be the ultimate, the most sacred, the most crucial aspect of their lives. And if we want just some tangible idea of what does that look like, all we got to do is think about Jesus Christ, right? You can't read through the Gospels without being overwhelmed that Christ's all-consuming passion was for his Father's glory. Let's go over to John chapter 17. John 17, this is Christ's prayer. We're going to jump through a couple of verses here. But he is concerned his whole life, uh, is concerned with hallowing God's name, making God's name be seen, making God's name be reverenced, glorifying God's name would be another way of saying it. And so John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Then look at verse 6. I have manifested, I have revealed, I have wanted your name to be seen to the people that you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus was so dedicated to God's name and God's glory, even when he went to the cross. He prayed in John 12, Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Hey, this is one of the most important points of application. We're going to get to it a little bit later in the sermon, but in case you just need something to hang on. The Lord, in the midst of suffering, a circumstance that he would not want, he even prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Right? He didn't want to go to the cross, but yet his consuming passion was for God's glory. And so he said, guess what? Father, would you be glorified in this? Father, would you be seen in this? And I believe that is why this part, hollowing God's name, is the very first request. Because it governs all the others. It is number one, and the five others that come after it flow from that. Think about it. The most important part of this whole universe is that God would be glorified. The Westminster Catechism says that God, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're here to do. And so we're there to hollow God's name. So think about it. Lord, would your name be hollowed? Leads us in to pray, Lord, would your kingdom come so that your name would be hollowed? The greater extension of the kingdom lets God's name be seen more. Lord, would your will be done? so that your name would be seen, your name would be reverent, your name would be hallowed. Father, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because your name is at stake, Lord. Lord, don't do this for me, but do this because you are a covenant-keeping, faithful God. May your name be seen in how you provide for our family's physical needs. And Father, would you allow us to forgive those who have trespassed against us so that your name would be seen, so that your name could be seen in how Christians forgive each other? Something the world doesn't know how to do. And Father, would your name be seen in how you lead us not into temptation, that we would reverence your name and that your name would be seen in how we live upstanding, upright, moral lives. You see the trick of this prayer? Here's the trick this morning. You cannot pray, hallowed be your name, without at the very same moment saying, I want to be hallowing your name. 
You, 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 can't, you can't give breath to Father hallowed your name without at the same time saying, I'm going to be a vessel that hallows your name. It, it goes together. God has made us a part of hallowing his name. Church, I know many of us feel insignificant. Our everyday lives are mundane and they're simple. And we like it like that. But did you know that you are a part of of God's plan to hollow his name. You're part of an extraordinary work in the mundane, in the simple, in your daily bread, in your forgiveness, and in your temptations. You get to be a part, you play a part in God's name being seen to the world. Which leads us to how does hollowing God's name impact our life? How does it impact our life? This is the application part. How does it impact our life? How is hallowing God's name not only where we should begin with prayer, but it really is what our entire life should be about, praising God. Why does that matter? Well, Christians, we are more honest than anybody else saying that eventually troubles are going to come upon you. Amen? Life gets difficult. And the Lord knows this, and that's why he gives us other petitions. He knows that we're going to have physical problems. And so he says what? Give us to stay our daily bread. He knows that we are going to have relational problems, even with each other. And so he says, forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive others their debts, which means that we're going to have problems. We have to forgive other people. They've sinned against us. He also knows that we're going to have moral problems. Lead us not into temptation. All of those things, though, are petitions. And where do they come in the Lord's Prayer? At the beginning or the end? What's the very first thing we're supposed to be praying for? Hallowed be your name. Let's apply this. What happens when you skip a desire for God's name to be hallowed and you run right into God's throne room with all of your petitions? What happens? It's selfish. I've heard that. I've talked to several of you throughout this prayer sermon series, and some of you are really bothered for friends. Maybe not even everyone that's coming here, but people that, that you are in conversation with, that you're a minister to. And people are troubled about they have unanswered prayers. Josh, I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and I just can't get any relief from this pain. Josh, I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and I just got to have that job. I just got to make that team. I had a Christian young person say to me just a couple weeks ago, would you just pray for me to make that team? I, I just have to make that team. And then God, God isn't answering my prayer, Josh. And let's be honest. Sometimes we leave prayer only more upset and more anxious than when we got into it. And then some people say, why even pray? It doesn't work. I feel worse when I leave than when I started. So what's the answer? What is the problem to our prayer life? The problem to our prayer life is a problem of adoration. You have hollowed your health. You have hollowed your career. You have hollowed your social relationships. And all of our problems are adoration problems. Whatever you hollow is a thing that runs your life. I can be just honest with you. This service, we got a couple minutes. This week, Janelle woke up early. First service didn't get this. She woke up like 
was doing my devotions at the kitchen table. So you know what? I'll take her back. I'll go and I'll snuggle with her. I am learning a lot that I did not know that all that Pastor Jeff did and all that Pastor Jeff handled. And sometimes the breadth and the depth of things is just overwhelming, just to be honest. You know, I'm just like, wow, <laughs> this is it's not just preaching. <laughs> and, uh, and so I snuggled up in bed with her. And I said, I'm just going to use that time just to pray. And so I started just praying about work and all the things that were going on. You know what? I was anxious. I was in turmoil. I couldn't rest. I didn't find any peace. You know what I was doing? I had hollowed work. And now I was only worrying in God's direction. And I called that pray. Do you see that? I needed to begin with hollowing God's name. God, would you be seen in work whether I know how to deal with the situation or not? Lord, if I lose this, if I'm not worthy to be called a pastor here, would your name still be seen? And now I can pray and I have a brand new perspective on how I want God to answer. The antidote to all of our worries in prayer is that if we have not hollowed God, if we have hollowed anything more than God, it completely controls our petitions, our worldview. It also completely controls our confessions. I only go to God when that one thing I really love is in danger. But I don't go to God just to meet with Him and just to enjoy Him. And so hollowing God's name is the antidote to reordering our loves. Guys, we all want to be happy, don't we? I'm going to argue with you that every decision you make is because you want to be happy. Blaise Pascal, great philosopher, said that every man makes his decision. Whether he goes to war or he avoids war, both men make that decision because they want to be happy. Even the man that hangs himself is making the decision to be happy. Beloved, God's word tells us that we were to find our happiness and that we were created to be happy in Jesus, in God. But since sin has come into the world, it has disordered our loves, and so we think that we will be happy in all of these other things. And we realize that we either love what we ought not to love, we fail to love what we ought to love, we love more what we should love less, or we love less what we should love more, and the ultimate reason that we are miserable is because we don't love God supremely. And Augustine famously put it like this, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I want to end with an application for you guys to visually see this, because I think Augustine's quote can be a little bit hard to understand about our hearts are meant to find their rest. So who in here has ever gone to a pool and played with a beach ball before? Anybody? All right, good. Got some people that are willing to do this. This is really heavy. And I never knew why we had this cart, and now I know why. It's not just for coffee cups. It is because water weighs a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and so when you go to the beach or you go to a pool and you have a ball, an inflatable ball, and you try, isn't it so much fun, kids, to try to submerge it? And when you try to submerge it, what happens? Is the ball at rest? No, we would say that it is propelled, that it is desiring to get back to its original state, and that no matter what we do, it is restless until it finds 
its proper spot of which it is supposed to be created. And it is supposed to rest. <laughs> it is supposed to rest on top of the water. In the same way, if you were to light a lighter, the flame naturally goes where? Up. Or if you were to throw a rock, it naturally goes where? Down. Our hearts are oriented to find their rest in God. And we are restless until we find our rest in Jesus. And we are restless because we don't adore you see, our hearts are like gravity. What we love is like gravity. It propels us. It draws us to things. Whatever we put our weight, right? Who in here should have stepped on a boogie board in a pool? Isn't that fun? And then it flies off from under you, right? Because it's, it's not made to be down there. When I try to float on top of the water, where does my weight want to take me? To the bottom. Our weight is our gravity. Our love is our gravity. And our gravity, ever since sin came into the world, is wanting to try to find these other good things that God has created. Work, health, spouse, beauty, pleasure, relationships. And we try to find them as ultimate. And guess what? We're restless. They don't satisfy. And so we go to the Lord in prayer, not because we want to enjoy Him, and not because we found our rest in Him, but because one of the things that we love more is at stake. And then our prayer life, we only get more anxious and more upset because all we've now done is think about how our idol is being threatened. And God is saying, you have not hollowed my name. How do you hollow God's name? You've got to change what you love. You've got to spend the same time adoring God for who He is. And when we do that, we will see that our anger, our anxiety, are all results of hollowing something else above God. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Hallowed be your name. Let's pray. God, we... Uh, confess that our hearts are prone to wander, prone to find other things, other names to reverence, to hollow, to center our life around. And Lord, as we come to the communion table, we realize that we have to confess our sin, that we have not hollowed you, treated you as the ultimate, sacred, crucial importance in our life. We have not loved you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Thank you for giving us your word that reorients our love. Thank you, Lord, for showing yourself beautiful that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Thank you that the gospel is that a man who found a treasure in a field went and sold all that he has, and in his joy, he went and he found you. Lord, thank you that following Jesus is our joy and that we glorify you by enjoying you as ultimate. May you reorient our loves now as we consider the love with which you had us by going to the cross. We ask all this in your name. Amen. It's a privilege to be able to bring uh, Sam Huggard. He is our new EFCA superintendent. Uh, he's going to lead us in our time of communion. Uh, he is uh, a 
formerly the pastor at Be Free in, in Alton, and uh, glad to have him and his family here. You'll get to know him after the service, but Sam, come on up and lead us in communion, as well as uh, the other men to help us, and I'll take this out of the way. Josh. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, yeah, wherever you'd like. Sorry. So if the men can come forward and help out, that'd be great. Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be here with you. Um, I've been in your uh, church building uh, many times before, like uh, Josh said. I was a pastor in uh, Alton, so just up the road a bit here. And uh, so I've been here and heard from Josh many times about your faith and what God is doing in and through you in this community. And so it's a pleasure to be here with you firsthand, get to meet some of you and find out more about what God's doing here. Uh, I've also had the privilege